trusting on it. That, that trusting it, souls. We won't have a have silence for for thirty minutes. Though that could be very zen. <laughs> it has about welcoming people to our new <laughs> new adventures podcast. in zen. New adventures in swamp casting or podcasting. Yeah. With the swamp. Right. I like that as a like but get rid of that. Get rid of that. All right, so welcome to podcast one on the swamp. I, I am Ross. And I'm Rui. Hello, so welcome to number one from first, we're taking it up from what, 2011, I do believe. Yeah, when uh, when was it? Were you not, you're not 100% It was, it was two, early 2011 after yeah. I came back from the US. Yeah. That was, that was podcast 11, I think, and that was that was when we put it to bed. Yep. Um, so uh, five years later, basically. Yeah, like so. Yeah, so for anyone that's picking us up now, um, um, uh, m- maybe just talk a little bit, Russ, about what, what it was that we did, and people can perhaps still uh, um, go to that site to check out those old uh, podcasts, and we might talk about what we're doing. Yeah. Um, well, so, same as what we're doing now, really, aren't we? I mean, you, you say, <laughs> talk about pop culture and, and try and put it into perspective, basically. Um, yep. Some kind of coherent perspective from the point of view of uh, someone who is a media studies teacher or was a media studies teacher and yep. using some of that sort of perspective, I suppose. Though, I think it's a glorified way of you saying, you know, talking about pop culture like anyone could do it really i mean i'm just using that as a qualification but it's like anyway yeah no but, but the the heart of the idea about the swamp is that um mm. on on the one hand we're we're surrounded and and swamped by um a, a never-ending array of new gadgets and technology and faster speeds and gizmos that help mm. us to mm-hmm. write stuff create stuff record stuff do yep. stuff and send it up into the ether yep. all which is fantastic on the other hand, um, one can get into maybe overwhelmed by just what is out there, yeah. and, and and we don't have to go through the the, the classic filter of um, you know of publishing houses and re- recording studios and 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 all the rest record yep. companies. We don't yep. have to do that. That's the pre-filtering is gone. The so-called pre-filtering is a term that I, I I've come across from this book I hold in my hand, The Long Tail by Chris yeah. Anderson, who is was once upon a time the editor of Wired magazine. He talks about pre-filters and post-filters and um, mm. and he said basically we're moving into um, into a time where the pre-filters are gone and it's just post-filters which is largely things like reviews after the work has been produced yep. and it's published and it's out there online then you get pre-filtering which is people reviewing what you've done yep. but obviously I mean having said that anyway I mean when any artist creates something they're doing their own editing if you like self-editing which is a type of filtering yep. but they're just not going through the big publishing houses they just once once they've they've edited the work to their their satisfaction or perhaps they've they've sent it out to friends to, to give some feedback they publish it but yeah it's so, like, it's so you yeah, know, I was going to say it's it's such a, a significant or dramatic change, which which we're yet we're, I guess all the repercussions of that are still kind of filtering or working their way through. That yeah. um, my my sense would, will be at least that um, yeah. I I know that there's already like a lot of debate about you know um, are we just sort of bogged down um, you know um, with um, you know endless amounts of say music or or books and e-books and blogs mm. and podcasts and whatever that are swimming out there because anyone can create yep. stuff. So there's yep. this enormous Enormous content out there because it's not being filtered, so it yep. just gets out there. Yep, that's right. But on the upside, and I don't know if that's perhaps what Chris was talking about in his book, that with the post-filtering idea, 
is that um, there's still something that's maybe then genuine about that is that what will stay or get traction, I at least hope, and maybe that's what he's talking about, is it'll eventually then be filtered by feedback and criticism. Mm. And if stuff is good and whether that's yeah. things getting, yeah. you know, likes on Facebook yeah. Or, or, yeah. or whatever on Twitter and, yeah. um, you know, a more, a building an audience and a readership will happen in a, maybe in a more genuine way that it's yeah. the good stuff that will get traction perhaps yeah. yeah he does talk about that and he talks yeah. about in terms of things like niches mm -hmm. that that's what it's been a boon uh, for things like you know a, a lot of sort of you know all kinds of niches musical niches, niches yeah. you now we're finding our audience yeah. but um chris's book is more uh, from a business perspective in terms of making money out of all of that yeah. and the, of course the people who are making money out of that are, are what's called the aggregators you know the googles and um soundclouds the big companies that can aggregate as and accumulate all that data into one place yep yep and make it available for all of us so we're all having fun swimming in this aggregated pool here yeah but, somebody uh, else's pool <laughs> yeah. well the person yeah. who's created that pool who, yeah. who's yeah. found a way of putting them all together is the one who will make the money out of it yeah which you know is neither here nor there i guess in, in some ways for a lot of people i mean they're, they're just interested in getting their stuff out yeah, except that I guess, um, you know, that, that becomes, the, the, you know, I, I just thinking that through is it like, um, so in time, you know, um, will it be a bit like perhaps there was a time when as long as you had access to, you know, you know papyrus or whatever, anybody could write <laughs> at some point, maybe only some people could get access to the papyrus or, or the printing press. <laughs> Uh, or well, a publisher. I love where you're going there with it, Louis. And that maybe there'll come a time where only those that can curry favour with the aggregators, that is things that could be marketable, make money, are mm. deemed to be useful by yeah. some people for some yeah. reason, yeah. get a Guernsey yeah. and maybe other things that for some reason the viewpoint might be from the aggregators, well, they're not likely to yeah. find a niche or make an audience or get money or be able to be mm. sponsored or whatever. Yeah. End up again, just dying a slow death, and they're the yeah. books that, are, yeah, that would they get their own kind of rejection letters in mm. the future? You know mm. that you just don't get on there. You know, yeah. um, it's definitely not like that. Yeah, my sense is, you, you know, that you, um, from what I see, any, anybody can still post anything onto, you know, you know, Facebook and, and create their own blogs or whatever. But I'd, I'd have to read Chris's book. But yeah. um, it'd be interesting whether in time are we just seeing between the Zuckerbergs and the Chris Longs and the whatever and the Google dudes, are we sort of seeing the new um, wave of um, yeah, the new Rupert Murdochs and that, we, that even in the digital world there's still going to mm. be um, – that, uh, not, not. Well, I don't want to use the word censorship, but but what's deemed to be good content or yeah, not yeah. Um, might happen in a post-filtered way, but it's still being filtered. You know mm. um, that that direct relationship between the producer of something and the consumer of something is still being filtered by somebody else. Yeah. Um, you know, and maybe it always has to be that way. Um, you, you have to piggyback on those guys if you want to get your stuff out yeah. there, you know. Um, no, well put. Uh, and the, we're piggybacking on basically on what's popular is what it comes down to. I mean, yeah. I find it myself when I'm putting yeah. up songs that I've done, you know, I put tags up for, you know, for a, an artist that the song sounds similar to because I'm hoping to piggyback on the, yeah. that popularity. Yeah. Um, but, it, again, it comes back to me, I, I think about this a lot, and it comes back again to, to the issue of time. People don't have the time to go out and search all those little niches. So the things that get thrown up who have, that have the publicity dollars to do it, that get thrown up are the ones that, that stick and that people look at and go, oh, ah, oh, the, you know, it's like yeah. in the middle of the shopping aisle, you know, the things yep. that are in the middle, you know, where people look. Same sort of deal with, with pop culture items, you know, it's always whatever has the 
advertising and PR money push to push it, it in front of us yeah. is still what we, and the reason why that is because we don't have the time yeah. it's convenient yeah. that's why shopping centres are all amalgamating and, and all in these mega under mega one, under marts. the one roof yep. you know, that's yep. all part of it um, I just wanted to read a, mm. a brief um, quote from from um, Anderson's book since we're on the, still on the topic um, see if this is sort of speaks to what I was saying um, he says here Francis Hammett, a writer on publishing topics, explains that the link between variety and the volume of consumption is best seen as a trade-off, as found in basic economics. One of the classic, and his quotes here, uh, one of the classic examples was the chart in my old economics textbook that demonstrated the trade-off between long-range bombers and new school buildings. There the constraint was money. Here, the constraint is time. Um, it takes time to find the items you want, and most people will buy what they are looking for the first place they find it rather than look for a lesser price. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's sort of pretty much what I was saying. Interestingly enough, though, Anderson goes on and sort of seems to ignore this point. He still he can he keeps coming back to the the beauty of technology and its ability to democratize everything. But right here, he's it's not democratizing. Basically, you know, yep. the, time, the time constraints just um, take us back to the same old dictatorship in many ways. The dictatorship of the few of the few items that get out there. Well, that's actually understand? yeah, I, I I totally I think that that's actually really um, really interesting uh, as a discussion anyway, just around. You know, like uh, uh, one of the things I've sort of been reading, I mean, also because I've spent so much time online and, and mucking about with, um, you know, different projects and, and um, reading stuff and creating um, blogs and so on, is the whole notion that um, uh, in two parts is that uh, for anyone that's been, that spends any time looking at, at, at ways of trying to uh, create uh income sources online through all different ways of whether it's a blog or publishing music or podcasts or whatever. Um, one reason why people are doing that is this whole notion that um, uh, this will free up time. You, you, you're, you're able to do, hopefully do something that you enjoy. You can probably do it from home. Um, you can get some product out there online um, uh, and this will give you more time. Mm. Uh, and this has become, uh, especially, I, th- I think like it's a first world disease or problem that um, you yeah, poor to spend the most amount of time um you know, at, at workplaces simply to earn enough to pay their rent or whatever, creative things, uh, you know, on, on, on the internet. Yeah. So yeah. so his point is really valid that, um, um, that that this desire to have more time has become um, or, or almost the modern, the, mo- the modern mantra that because people mm. feel this enormous pressure around just not having time to do stuff. So g- having grown up as you did in, in, a, in a generation of watching uh, Jetsons yeah. cartoons, yeah. I mean, the whole promise was that if we ever end ended up with the, the technology that we could only dream about then that now we actually have, yet most people that I meet, if anything, feel increasingly overwhelmed and time poor, mm-hmm. that between mm-hmm. work and responsibilities and studying and kids mm-hmm. and families and, of course, the insatiable demand to be trying to catch up on your email and the latest podcast and the latest whatever mm-hmm. online, mm-hmm. Um, that they find themselves having very little time for anything mm-hmm. else. And um, it's very few people that um, will actually spend time on a weekend, you know, perhaps lazily reading a, a Saturday age or a book mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and, and yet the whole idea of all of this technology was that it, things should be at our fingertips mm-hmm. and, yeah. 
and, and life would be easier, yeah. less complicated, and create more time for us. Yeah. But has it? We, we, we've just got even it more. It has for some. I mean, the holy grail is that thing called passive income. Yeah. yeah. People can, can get it great. And that's the thing when you, when you, you know, you, you read these books about these, how to make money online and that. That's always the mantra. What you want to do is make passive income where some people are paying money into your account and you're sitting back and you've got the time to go and take the kids on a holiday. Passive income is where where it's at. Yep. But again, how many people manage to do that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, and 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 almost like that's maybe the the pup that's been sold, or not in the sense that the people. I mean, obviously, some people have achieved it, like like you know Chris yeah. Anderson and, yeah, and many yeah. others, but um, or quite a few others. Mm. But probably my sense is uh, is that sort of the, you know um, uh, like like the new form of, of the you know the d- digital capitalism where mm. um, yes uh, uh, the pos- the promise is there yeah. but that promise is probably only ever likely to be fulfilled for very few people yeah. so for every Zuckerberg yeah. there's then millions of Zuckerbergs that are <laughs> you know funding all of this stuff on um, Facebook or whatever um, you know basically so that you know um, you know people can basically sell advertising space yeah, right. it's probably always been thus you yeah. know if you think about um, you know it was the guy selling the, the the picks and shovels that made most of the money out of the gold rush not yeah. the actual diggers yeah you know, for every one person that came across a lucky strike, thousands of people probably went broke and led pretty sad lives, completely yeah. bankrupt in the chase and the lure of, you know, striking it rich in the in the gold fields. And yeah. I get the feeling that that chase for passive income online will probably send most people probably broke and crazy as well. Yeah. Um, but make some people probably fabulously wealthy, both in terms of time and in terms of money. That's you right. know. <laughs> Books. Yes, my man, you can see the books. They're in this place called. 
So, Russ, what, what was that song we were just listening to? Um, oh, there was a fantastic song uh, called Book Report by... A oh, called, of course. Um, yeah, Will Graves. Oh, there's a band called yeah. Grober's Mill, but I believe the guy behind it is Will Greaves. And, of course, he's one of the contributors to this site, so that's kind yeah, of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just didn't recognise it because you've obviously remixed it a bit. Is that right? Yes, yeah. actually. I've used um, a guest vocalist in, in the breakdown section, which I was listening to in the car the other day, actually, and it <laughs> sounded actually quite good. Uh, uh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic, you know, and, and, I've, and I've got a feeling that you're, you're actually working on a video for it as well. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, it. yeah. Well, well, is yet. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and do, do, so, um, any chance that we might get that on the swamp? Or I yeah, think that there's yeah. the definite possibility. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah we're just looking for um, some other contributors actually for that video. We need some people to sing along right. to the chorus. Okay, yeah. So this is a call out to anyone out there, please. Contribute. Yeah, oh, fantastic. So, what people can just um, can what just um, well, send, the idea send in a send in a, 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 a phone recording from their right. phone of themselves singing the chorus, which is simply wow. yeah. books are real, books are cool. cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Learn to read. That's the golden rule. Well, yeah, well, I think anyone that just that's not too hard. Yeah, anyone that just heard that, I think, um, couldn't but help get swept up in the chorus for it. And um, I, I hope lots of people will send in their sing along for us. So, mm. um, but yeah, that brings us actually to the to the to the book report and perhaps what we're reading. I know you picked up a copy recently of um, one of our great heroes, Robert, uh, Robert Forster. Tell me about that. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah the book was Grant and I. Um, he right. just brought it out um, just recently. And, and the grant of the title, of course, is um, Grant McLennan. Yeah, he's a fellow songwriter away. in yeah. The Go-Between. So I just finished reading the book. It's right. um, a fantastic read. Um, the yeah. guy writes really well. Um, and, and this has just been published, has it, Russell? Yeah, it's just been right, published okay. on uh, it's so, Penguin. Yeah. Right. It was yeah. Um, he's had a good year this year. Old yeah, because um, there was Robert also a new Forster. album, wasn't there? Yeah, that, that was Songs great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had that in the car. It's the best yeah. album of the year, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah, and I, so I he's agree. done that, and he's done this. Right. A fantastic book. Um, he just takes you through 
the ballad of the go-betweens, basically, from Mark One, the, the the original group, up to 1990 when they break up, and then even right. the intermission section between the 90s and then in the remake version of the the band in in the noughties from 2000 to 2006 when right. Grant died, and and throughout is, is this this thread of the, the friendship between Robert and Grant. Which so so how did they meet, Ross? How did they actually meet? Well, they met at um, the University of Brisbane. Right. They were, okay. They were both doing. Um, a course in drama um, right. and in that little drama courses where, um, you know, they got together and realised uh, they had a few things in common. Grant actually was not a musician at the time. Robert had, had learnt guitar and right. uh, he was thinking about getting the band together and um, he realised Grant had the temperament to maybe be his part. He didn't know whether he could write songs or whether right. he was musical at all, but he, he thought he'd rove him in. Oh, wow. So, so Grant only really began to learn sort of guitar Robert taught, him, Robert taught him. He oh, taught him wow. guitar yeah, and wow. bass. Yeah, wow. he needed a bass player at some point, and so he so he got Grant. And Grant, to his to his credit, basically um, took it up. Well, yeah. No, I'm just sort of not floored or knocked out by um, how how good they both sounded, and yep. um, obviously what amazing songwriters they were. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know at all that Grant had obviously only started to learn music that late, yeah. that that late in life. Yeah, um, yeah that's yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. It wasn't that late in life. He was about twenty yeah, at the time. But yeah, I mean, most people have been tinkering. I mean, yeah. most people in bands have usually been tinkering with something, yeah. you know, in their teens or or, or whatever. You know, yeah. that's 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 pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah, and they then formed the go between straight away. Or they really sort of pretty much, mucked yeah. around with Once some other bands. Did, yeah, for, well, that's right. Pretty much right at that point is right. when they formed the band and Robert gave it right. the name. Yeah, and um, literally from a, a reference to to Hartley's. It's um, not actually. Oh, okay. Which is something that surprised me. It was more to do with with the clash of personalities. There needed to be a go between between right. the two of them. Maybe right. music was it. Right. So that that's what it really refers to. Yep. That enabled him to find that sort of common yeah. ground, and yeah. Well, he certainly doesn't say mention the 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 Hartley book, but he mentions it late later on. But whether it was an inspiration, they were both very bookish to begin with, and always have. Been. Yeah, I'd just assumed. So that, I wouldn't be yeah, surprised if yeah. um, it was a favourite book, and and he thought about it. But yeah, they started off. You know, they met in this this drama course, and uh, just realised that um that they had very similar tastes. Um, and that their sense of humour is very sim- similar as well. And there's a nice uh, passage early on in the book where he, he sort of speaks to this. I'll just quickly read it out. Yeah, please. Um, Our taste in music was similar from the start with no sense of having to convert the other to a position. If there was one generalisation that could be put to our exchanges, it was his championing of the monkeys to my Velvet Underground and (laughs) mid-60s Dylan leanings. The breaking wave of punk we both welcomed and our opinions on each new artist and group were generally in step. The drama department didn't give acting lessons, although we read plays aloud and some scenes were staged. Grant and I liked to fossick in the costume trunks through the medieval cloaks and capes, the bowler hats <laughs> to get to the swords. Immediately it was Errol Flynn and Basil Rathbone between us. We would joust, our free arms bowed, our legs splayed, fighting in mock seriousness, and then, knowing that traffic was in gridlock on Sir Fred Schonall Drive, we would burst out of the doors of the Avalon to continue our duel down the long front stairs of the theatre. 
our eyes locked as we alternated pinning the other to a wall or railing, only for the other to gallantly fight back. Hmm. Drivers and passengers of the stalled cars sat open-mouthed or laughing as we came into view. Soon we were sword-fighting between the cars with not a giveaway smirk, only the occasional roared, You cad! And take that, you <laughs> bastards! And then, just as quickly, the fight would retreat up the stairs like the rewinding of a film reel, and we'd disappear through the theatre doors. These were the first go-between performances. Oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. 
But yeah, it's a nice passage actually where Robert talks about how the decision came about to reform the band. I'd just like to read yeah, that out yeah, and please. kind of cap this off. Yeah. Um, it, it's about 19, what is it, 1999, I think, at this point. Um, they'd just done a gig in Melbourne. Um, let me think, would I have seen that? Probably not. Um, no, because this was uh, the gigs where they was just Robert and Grant and... Um, they were sort of going by the name The Go-Betweens at this point, but they hadn't reformed the band. It was like a special reformation of The Go-Betweens for this one-off type yeah, series yep, of concerts. Yep. Um, and so I'll read through here. On the cab ride to our hotel after the first Melbourne soundcheck, Grant asked if he could come to my room for a chat. Sure, I thought it concerned his mother who'd been sick. Maybe he'd have to fly to Cairns soon. We were staying at the Novotel on the waterfront. I was in room 508 with a view deep out over the bay where I would see waiting ships. Grant came in and the first thing he said was, I think we should restart the go-betweens. I wasn't totally surprised and yet the gasp in my heart showed I wasn't prepared for the, the request. It wasn't a question. The tour had just begun. We were settling into what we could do. But Grant was streets ahead. Historically, I saw the fit, the turn of the wheel. I'd had to ask him twice to start the band, and he'd saved me back in 77, and I'd never forgotten it. Eternal gratitude and brotherhood for that. I'd been in a jam, with two classic songs in a town where no one understood me but him, and now in return he wanted what he'd given me. I was aware too that we wouldn't be starting from scratch. Not really Remick this time, instead the album after 16 Lovers Lane. Mm. There was a legacy attached to the group's name and it was building. If we recorded, which was obviously part of Grant's plan, then not only would what we did now be measured against what we'd done before, but we'd be seen to be tampering with a legacy, in effect juggling fire. This didn't seem to bother Grant. For him, one set of songs led to another, fished as they were from a great pond of poetic intent, and in conjunction with this was his spirit, blithe, blind, full of self-possession, qualities that drove many mad, but which, when hitched to an artistic adventure, were pure gold. He didn't even consider the possibility that we could fail. I'd have to worry about that, and in doing so, guide the direction of our group as best I could. Grant gave me room to think as I paced the floor. For once, my lack of emotional spontaneity wasn't counting against me. I mumbled yes and okays as he tried to elaborate on a proposition that really needed no more elaboration. I was leaning to a yes and he was happy to leave without a firm answer. I phoned my wife Karen that night and there was as much shock in her voice as when I'd phoned in late 89 announcing that Grant and I were breaking up the group. Mm. We discussed the changes Grant's proposal would bring to our lives and growing family, both of which were in need of financial security. The next dates were in Europe and by then the decision was made. The tour now had another purpose and as we travelled from city to city, Grant and I looked for a location to record a new Go-Betweens album. Not that we visited studios or had discussions with producers backstage. That's what a, a normal group would do. We were looking for signs in the sky, a carving in a tree, a David Lynch moment, mm. some person or clue to reveal itself to us. And if that didn't work, there was the phone book. Nothing came to us during our 24-date European tour and we were down to the last three shows of the three-week US leg when the puff of smoke event we'd been hoping for happened. 
Oh wow! Yeah, nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, what? I want to know what was the puff of smoke. What was the puff of smoke? Yeah. Well, I'm not telling you. You have to read it yourself. <laughs> Great. So, welcome to yet another. Swamped. And you've been listening also to some music and stuff, Russell, yeah, and watching some films lately? Yeah, I've seen a a really interesting series of documentaries, uh, one of which I saw in the 80s. It's called uh, The Decline of Western Civilization. Okay. Um, and, and and you've just you've rediscovered it again by yeah, chance. Yeah, well, it's just or come out like... on DVD. Um, oh, the, the right. three I, I knew that, that she'd done two of them, but I didn't know she was done three of them. But um, the names, the director's name is Penelope Spears, who you'd know she was the director of Wayne's World. Ah, oh, right. Okay. Yeah, she had big success with that. But these right. films, well, the first two were made in the eighties before that. And one of the reasons why she got the gig for Wayne's World was simply because she clearly d- demonstrated a knowledge of heavy metal music, at least in. In the, in, the, in, the, in the LA scene um, before that. So the, the suits were looking around for some director who might know something about right. some of Wayne's world right. is sort of set in sort of heavy, heavy metal bars. Yeah, and they wanted, yeah, that somebody that could really yeah, bring that scene to life. Yeah. And, and So basically, yeah, there, there's the first film was um, uh, the, the Punk Years. It was made in 1979. It's basically looking at the LA punk scene. Right. Um, it features um, bands like X and um, Fear and um, Circle Jerks and... Um, uh, a couple of other bands like that. Um, yeah. And it, Which was so, so therefore was sort of kind of happening in tandem with the Pistols in the scene in England or? It's sort of after them. It's post the, post the Pistols, really. Right. The LA punk scene comes, I mean, really off of the Ramones more than anyone, I yeah. guess. Um, yeah. But inspired by all of that um, and really quite a, a vital scene and, and it's captured really well in the film. Some right. really dynamic um, live performances, um, particularly the, the final band, um, band called Fear, where they they come on stage and they just bait bait the audience just pulling shit all over them you know right. I, I think there's a few people in there who give really good blowjobs and you know just yeah, well, getting yeah, them really, really fired, fired up, up and right. spitting back at them and saying, you spit really well and, <laughs> um, and there's a, a bit where there's a girl in the crowd of all people comes up a girl looks a bit like um, Cherie Curry of the Runaways right. she gets up runs up on stage seemed to be really pissed off with them and and really seemed to want to have a go at the lead singer and he. He pushes her back into the crowd. He kicks her in, in the crowd, and then some oh, of the, wow. the bouncers come along, and she tries to get back up, and they it's kick her back, back in. The, in it's really quite hard to watch in some ways. Um, but we see her later on, the girl, and she's you know happy, happily moshing away. And right. it's really amazing footage that she captured yeah, yeah. Um, in that entry. The, oh, I'm assuming these were probably like very um, um, small release, little independent films that she that she did. They that were she, fairly yeah. indie, yeah. yeah but yeah. They, they got a lot of traction. Well, the second film, um, The Metal Years, actually went a bit higher uh, because looking at the, the metal bands in, in LA, particularly the glam metal bands like uh, Pussycat Kill and... Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, poison um, and who else? Um, I wish they'd have put. She'd have included Motley Crue, but she didn't. Um, um, and uh, Megadeth, um, a right. pretty big band as well. Yeah. Uh, but that's an interesting um, film because um, she had some fairly high-profile um, interviewees. That she had Ozzy Osbourne. Right. That, she but, had the two guys, two guys from Aerosmith, um, Joe Perry and um, Stephen Tyler. Yep, interviewed. they came on. Yeah. A couple of guys from Kiss, um, Gene Simmons and um, Chris. Um, um, no, no. Um, Paul Stanley. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and interview, interviewed very interesting sort of venues. Um, um, Ozzy Osbourne's interviewed um, in, his, in his slippers and a, and a little sort of um, um, 
dressing gown and he and he's cooking some breakfast <laughs> eggs and bacon right, and so eggs while home. he's doing his, yeah. his interview, just shuffling yeah. around. It's really, really funny to watch. Right. Um, right. Um, so yeah, but but the actual bands um, featured are, are um, those bands are, who were interviewed are not the ones who actually are featured in in the, in the doco. I mean, bands like. Pussycat Kill, um, mm-hmm. um, oh, who was this other band? Um, Seduce were another band. Very sort of punky, sort of LA metal punk, I guess you call it, and pretty good stuff. Though there's an interesting segment um, with a band called London, yep. who and it's basically the, the Spinal Tap moment in, in the film. It's really they are, they come off as so inept, and there's a, there's a sequence in the, in their stage show where the lead singer comes up and, and he and he badmouths Russia. He goes, "Oh, Russia's you know the communists, blah blah blah," yeah, yeah. and he and he gets out uh, this big Russian flag and, and he and, and he tries to burn it with his lighter, and <laughs> it, doesn't. it doesn't set a light. So imagine <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, you know, yeah, just get yeah, that image yeah. in your mind. It's just yeah. super lame. And the right. guys when they're interviewed, they just come off as um just real tryhards. And um the weird thing for me was, I mean. Right. There's no doubt for me that was the the spinal tap moment in the film, and it was one of the good things about it, one of the strengths because it was um it was clearly showing us a very warts and all view of the the scene, yeah. um you know the best stuff and and some of the, and worst, the worst stuff yeah. um but um the DVD includes a, a commentary commentary that the director gives with the lead singer of this London band and um. And there's no sense of irony about London's yeah, performance. Yeah, you know, it's like, yeah. you know, oh, you're really good guys. Um, but, like, did you actually watch this? I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah well, yeah, you know, it's just, yeah. it was really strange. I, I yeah. really don't know how to take it now because Penelope yeah. Spheres seemed to be fairly um, complimentary about the performance. I don't know if it was because she had the lead singer there yeah. with her and she was being polite. But And, and still making films today as far as um, you know? I, I don't know, to tell you the truth. Yeah, I mean, yeah. she made the third one after she did um, Wayne's World. Um, yeah. She wanted to apparently get back into that. Um, I, I I didn't actually look at all of it because it's basically Return to the Punk. She's looking at the punks of 1996 in that one right. who were basically inspired by the original punks. Um, and right. there weren't really any, any name bands that I knew. I mean, I thought they might be at least be Green Day, but they weren't even in there. Right. Um, and it was just sort of treading old ground, I thought. So I was, it was a bit disappointing and I didn't watch it all. Which is kind of interesting because we sort of we were talking a little bit about that off air, and it's um, not even around sort of longevity of bands and stuff. But um, you know that um, it's interesting you use the phrase sort of you know just you had know, treading old ground. That um, thinking about you know what is it that um, enables some artists to, to to have the longevity that they've had. Whether yeah. we're talking about ACDC and yeah, um, yeah. Um, you know a couple of the, the Stones and so on. And um, I mean whatever one thinks about the music or whatever, um, you, know, you know hats off or respect to any you know that. Are still doing it at yeah. sort of seventy and still trying to push the barrel and yeah. create new stuff and are not right. just yeah living on um yeah. you know past glories and memories which we sadly we see so many of these reunion tours you know yeah. um and yeah. a bit like you were talking about with the go betweens yeah. that they had this view they were going to come back and not just you know right. keep playing you know lovers right. lane for the next ten years but yes. really wanted to do something else yes. and yeah. you know and see what else yeah. they could do well you the, know? the stones are a bit of an exception to the rule as far as you know old rock and rollers yeah. you know. Are still going. There's not many more of them doing that. Yeah. Bowie was one of the last yeah, of them too, yeah. and um, of course this this is the year he died. Um, yeah. My guess is um, when the, the the record reviews, the end of the year record reviews come out, his album Black Star may be number one. And right. I don't think it's even just going to be a sentimental right. favorite. I mean, it was a good album. It was yeah. a good album. The top yeah. track in particular. 
Um, yeah. Great track. Um, yeah. Really good album. You know, and just a testament to him. And it's great to see that you know he went out on a high. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's Bowie. You know, that's that's that. This was the year. You know, and we have to farewell, farewell another the man. You know. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. There's um. Yeah. Um, yeah, there are lots of others. There's Prince, obviously, yes. but to me, um, Bowie's yeah. the big one. You know? Yeah, we've well, we've had yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely a few big um, music artists and um, you know, and a number of actors as well as as, as we all all do. But that one sort of took, yeah, certainly took me a little bit by surprise. It so did, yeah. yeah, you know yeah. that I, I didn't know at all that he'd been unwell mm-hmm. and um, yeah, you know, had it been Bob or whatever with his um, you know, multiple wow. heart attacks and yeah. cigarettes, but um, well, but it, but he's still time. playing. He's, give it time. Give yeah, it time. in fact, yeah. I'm told he's on tour at the moment and um, and and uh, <laughs> doing. The never-ending tour and doing super well in Europe. So, well, you know, yeah. the, the bookmakers are putting odds on when he, where he's going to die, you know. But anyway, we've got to wrap it up, I think, at this point. So yeah, no, we'll, we'll, yeah, look, it's, it's, it's been fun as always, Russ, to, um, to, to, to get the show on the road again. Yeah. And um, yeah. it, it feels a bit rusty, but a, a bit fun. And um, I look forward to, um, um, to our next one. Yeah, yeah, me too. Goodbye. Arrivederci.